Hi, it's Guy here and welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. This episode, I speak to the Grammy and Brit award-winning record producer, Steve Levine. Now, Steve started out as a trainee tape operator at the age of 17 uh, in the business and he's gone on to enjoy a massively successful career working with people like The Clash and The Beach Boys and, most famously, producing the first three Culture Club albums. Uh, Steve's a pioneer of digital recording techniques. He's also been named the BPI Producer of the Year he also runs his own label, Hubris Records, and has appeared on loads of radio and TV programmes talking about music, and a regular guest and sometime presenter on BBC Radio 6 Music. Uh, he also has his own radio production company, he's produced several shows, including the really successful documentary series, The Record Producers, which featured interviews with some of the biggest names in record production. In this interview, hear how Steve got his big break in the industry at 17. There's a funny story behind that. Uh, hear also what it was like for him and the band when Culture Club's Do You Really Want To Hurt Me became a massive hit. And hear which record changed everything for him as a producer. So first of all, you mentioned that you won an award last weekend. So just tell me about the awards and what was that for? So last week at the New York Radio Festivals... We won two gold awards for our Radio 2 show, Bing Crosby, The Road to Rock and Roll, from Final Solution to Audio Revolution. And it aired in October last year, October 2017, which was the 70th anniversary of the very first ever pre-recorded to tape radio show, which was Bing Crosby's. Right. And it coincided with the 40th anniversary of his death in 1977. Those two events happened at the same time and what was interesting for those that don't know the story is that during the second world war the nazis invented magnetic tape recording which the allies had no idea about until the end of the war and a signals engineer called jack mullen found the machines in one of the berlin radio studios brought them back to the u.s and that coincided with bing crosby having difficulty with his radio show initially having to record it or in fact, initially having to do it live twice, once for the East Coast and once for the West Coast. He then started recording it to disc, which was the only medium available at the time. So they didn't have to perform the show twice, but also started to want to record multiple shows on a day, hmm. because golf was his main passion. If things went wrong on the recording, being to disc, being recorded to disc, no editing unless you went disc to disc, which meant the quality went down. So this was causing all sorts of problems. Jack Mullen showed Bing Crosby the captured Nazi machine, recording onto tape, which not only offered an unprecedented level of fidelity. Mm. In fact, we mentioned that in the documentary that the quality of those machines was so good, it was only beaten in the 70s when we went over to transistor technology. But the actual way they did it, the, the tape formulations, they got it right. It was incredible quality. But, of course, you could edit it with a pair of scissors. So this was in the days of editing with of tape. Yeah. And, in fact, that was something that Jack Mullen showed Bing almost immediately. They were doing a, a joke, and there was, like, a, a risque joke, and because it was sponsored, they couldn't have any language that was not appropriate. It, I don't think it was even, you know, a, a swear word. I think it might have been something like damn, which in those days you weren't allowed <laughs> to use. Uh but of course it caused a laugh and then another joke fell a bit flat and Jack took the applause from the, 
the blue joke and moved it forward. <laughs> and of course, that was the first time canned laughter was used. But if, and Bing there and then wrote out a cheque for the equivalent of $6 million in today's money to start what became Ampex. And who was that cheque written to? Jack Mullen to set up the Ampex Corporation because they needed to further develop the machines and also take them to the next stage. So he saw the potential of this editing and absolutely and reworking what you already had yes. to make and, a better product. And not only did Bing Crosby know the potential with regard to radio broadcasts, but he gifted the first machine off the production run to Les Paul. And Les Paul, being the fabulous musician that he was, mm. pioneered the process of overdubbing sound on sound. And here we are sitting in a recording studio, mm. which I would argue very strongly, none of which would have happened had Bing Crosby not invested a phenomenal amount of money to develop the German technology. Wow. So it all goes back to that moment, you think? Absolutely. Well, that's why we use the phrase from final solution to audio revolution, because those that know German history also know that during the Nuremberg trials, the Nazis were particularly good at covering their tracks. And there was a small piece of tape... Heinrich Himmler recorded some of his meetings in the same way that President Nixon did, and there was a small piece of tape salvage where he admitted to the final solution. Mm. And that was the uh, the thing that the, the proof that they needed. They mm. tried to erase the tape. So as early as the Nuremberg trials, tape had caused someone to be hoisted by their own petard, and many years later, President Nixon had the similar fate. Mm. So. That's the whole great thing about it. Often these, this medium is, is done for propaganda purposes. Hitler developed it absolutely for propaganda purposes. But look what the great things have come out of mm. the, the people using the technology for freedom of speech, for cultural enrichment. It's fantastic. Mm. The, the positive things that have come out of being able to record. You mentioned we're sitting here in your studio. Just tell me a bit about uh, this studio. How long have you had it and, and what are we sitting amongst at the moment? Well, I've relocated to Liverpool, and we're coming up to about five years. I originally had a studio in London. I used to live in Fulham in London. A couple of things with London. It was getting very noisy because Fulham, as I'm sure everyone's seen recently with the flight path, it used to get really, really noisy. And for something like this that we were recording when I was producing my radio series, mm. the noise was beginning to get obtrusive i mean we can hear now it's beautifully quiet mm. obviously we're in the middle of an unseasonably hot summer so i have the <laughs> air conditioning on but that's the only noise in the room the rest yeah. of it is completely silent and i wanted to be able to have a much more silent studio for my radio show it's not so important when i'm producing a band because invariably when you're recording lead vocals you're stopping and starting quite a lot so noise is less intrusive but more importantly the change in the way that bands were and I use that word bands, we were moving much more towards bands, but not in the traditional sense. So you, it's not unusual now to see a guitar band with a load of synthesizers. Mm. And what's lovely about that is very often the tracks are cut as band performance tracks. Even if they have pre-recorded elements or sequenced elements, the band are still performing essentially live. And I needed a bigger studio to capture that which is one of the reasons for having a bigger studio now, so mm. I can capture a full live band should I need to. Also, my work with the BBC, I'm now 35 minutes on a good day from Salford, mm. which is great, which makes it nice and handy. And also, it enables me, certainly in the case of Liverpool, there's a lot of um, emerging talent here. So having a studio like this enables me to develop talent in a way that you can't do in a commercial studio. It's just prohibitively expensive. And 
how does it compare your studio today with the studio when you first started out at CBS? Well, things are different, but then things are the same. Hmm. So in those days, when I first started in 1975, it was only recording to tape. Digital hadn't been invented. Well, it had been invented, but it wasn't commercially available at that hmm. point. And when I first started, it was actually 16-track. We hadn't even moved to 24-track. CBS was a late adopter of 24-track. So in the time I was there, in the couple, so 75 was 16-track. By the time we moved to end of 76, we were moving into 24-track, which made a huge difference. But it was essentially 2-inch tape, 16-track. And the mixing consoles at the time were Neve desks in all of the three studios, the kind of desks that people would absolutely go mad for now but mm. actually having been there at the time they were showing their age and they were getting to become unreliable irony being that i have a brand new neve 1073 in this studio <laughs> but the quality of the modern modules whilst they have the sonic fingerprint of that period mm. they are made to a phenomenally high standard i mean they're expensive but they work so gone are those days of the crackly pots and also multiple inputs. So those desks literally had, I think it was 28 inputs and 16 monitors. So the desk I have here in this studio has 96 inputs. Hmm. So already through the late 70s and 80s, we were expanding the number of inputs and also the, the signature. We didn't have automated mixing in those days, which we do now. And we did have, though, all these great microphones. So some of my microphones in my collection are f from my original purchases in the 80s, so the famous microphones, the 87s, etc. But also some of the synthesizers. Again, it's gone full circle. Many people lust after synthesizers from the mid to late 70s, but they're remanufactured now to a much higher quality. So the ARP Odyssey that I have to my right i never owned one originally mm. when i was 17 but i have one now <laughs> and again the build quality is fantastic the so built to last well the thing about modern circuit technology is that lasers cut things very accurately flow soldering is very very accurate whilst i love things being handmade and that's certainly the case with many guitar pedals but that's very simple technology mm. for more um complicated circuitry machines actually do do a better job and a, and a more accurate job and it's repeatability so that so that one machine is going to be pretty much the same as another and, and that's important so yes this studio is is a, a melting pot of vintage technology and the very latest technology and they work so well together they mm. really do and i think that's what the bands love when they come here that it's a, a melting pot of those two worlds but more importantly because i was 17 in 1975 i've got first-hand experience and yeah. there's one thing that you that just gets better with age is your experience and where was the cbs studio at that time then when you joined cbs studios was in whitfield street it just moved to whitfield street before that it used to be in bond street but that was before my time so it was a uh, one of the first custom-made buildings to be a studio so it was a three studio complex with a large studio studio one which we could record an orchestra in not a, a huge orchestra but a, a big orchestra it wasn't as big as abbey road or now air but it, it was certainly a fair size studio two was this kind of cool hip band studio and studio three was the sort of 
whatever was in the other studios that was past its best went upstairs to Studio <laughs> 3 and that's where we cut all the great demos where I first got to work with The Clash and The Vibrators and all those bands because punk was new at that time and they didn't want the polished stuff that was in Studio 2 we were all very young, we were all the same age and so it was an exciting time to work on the demos of those bands some of those bands got signed to CBS some of them didn't and in the case of The Clash the demos turned into The Masters which turned into the first album and a few tracks post the first album so I got to work on all of those some bands like for example XTC who we did the demos with didn't sign to CBS but went to Virgin so that's the way it goes. But it's great experience working with these bands. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, what was it like working with those guys at the time? Was it intimidating at the time, or were you? What no, was it just like? ex- just very, very exciting and very high paced. Because for those that are of a certain age, will remember how the seventies got very flabby with these big rock bands. I've told the story before, but I'll say it again because I think it's hilarious. So in the time, so lots of rock bands booked Studio Two because it mm. had some of the newest gear. And I remember Supertramp booked a session at CBS Studios. And every time I went to the toilet, because the toilet was next to the studio door, I'd hear... (laughs) As they're getting a snare drum sound. Meanwhile upstairs, I think at those sessions were the Clash, I think. It might have been the Drones, I can't remember which ones it was. But in the... the, in the week they took to get a snare drum sound, we recorded an album. <laughs> that was what was happening with punk. Okay. It was a real 359 degrees turn of the industry. So instead of concentrating on every single sound being perfect, it was just get the sound of the band down. Essentially capturing what they did live, but with the studio trickery that you could improve it. So in the case of The Clash being a very good example, Mick Jones very hands-on, a couple of the guitars were double-tracked, the vocals were overdubbed, so you got a better sound. But essentially, we captured a very raw backing track on pretty much every single song, but then overdubbed and mixed and, and whatever. So it was that's what was great about punk. It was capturing what was going on. And, and it's interesting when you look back, you know, pre-internet, what went on in London stayed in London. So the bands like the uh, Vibrators... The Clash, which were London-based bands, mm. played at Dingwalls, 100 Club, etc. That was very much a London-centric thing and stayed that way. Mm. And then all the bands up here in Liverpool that were playing at Eric's did the same thing. So so no, nothing mixed, but that kept them ha- separate and they had a more unique sound because of that. And did you know, like, for example, with The Clash when they first came in, did you realise straight away how good they were or how, how sort of significant they would be or is it just a case of another band coming through the door and you dealt with them as it was another band for the first couple of hours definitely because we were in that routine we'd set up and we'd you know put the screens up and do whatever we because presumably you'd have a different band every day or every couple of days it depended on on who the a and r executive was at cbs who'd booked it because the deal they had was uh, scout would go to pub scout would see band scout would go to a and r executive and say just seen a band in the Dublin Castle is often the case, you know, one of the smaller pubs. Really good, so they would give them up to five days of studio time. Monday to Friday, 10 to 6. Hmm. And the idea being is that as junior engineers, we would then work on those sessions so everyone was learning. We'd be learning our craft as working with a band. Because we were recording demos, there was no issue if something went wrong, hmm. and the bands were free to take those demos to whoever they wanted to 
after a window of something like four to six weeks. So the CBS had the opportunity to... They had first to, refusal. First refusal, yeah. yeah. But after that, there was no strings attached to the band, could get, as in the case of XTC hmm. and a few others. Speaking to Simon Humphrey, who worked with me on those sessions, he recently he he mentioned that we'd done some demos with you too. But I, I honestly, that's one of the ones I d- actually don't remember. You don't remember doing it? Uh, no, because it was it's, it obviously was very insignificant. Yeah. I don't remember that session. It may have been only a couple of days. The Clash, on the other hand, we developed a really good relationship with them for multiple reasons. Firstly, we instantly all got on. Certainly, in the case of myself, Simon, and Mick, we got on great, and we're friends to this day. Hmm. Um, the other thing was that Mick lived in Camden Town and I lived at the time at Hampstead, so I used to take him home after the sessions, <laughs> which was often dropping him off at Dingwall. So we developed an extra relationship in the journey home. Hmm. Uh, so that was good. And when the executives came down from the record company to hear them play in the studio, you just got a sense that they were just a cut above the average. Hmm. And that's all it was initially, but then, of course, it developed into the great thing it was. Hmm. And that was certainly true. By the time we were halfway through the album, it felt really good and exciting. And I enjoyed all the tracks. And, you know, my personal favourite is probably White Man in Hammersmith Palais, which we recorded. We didn't actually mix that one, or we did a mix, but that was the start of them then working with Bill Price, working with an external producer. Mm. And Bill mixed that one, but we certainly recorded it. And we recorded everything up to it. So the first album and those other extra tracks. So that was fabulous. And as I said, you know, I've spoken to Mick recently and, and uh, we have great reminiscences of, mm. of uh, things. It's, um, you say you joined at 17, CBS. Yeah. So was it something from a very early age you wanted to have a career in music, particularly in studio engineering? Or when did that become something that you, you thought, right, this is what I want to do? From a very early age, so really, really early on, I was always surrounded by music. I loved music. My mum's best friend was from Jamaica, and I was surrounded by early sky. It wasn't even reggae. Where did you grow up, by the way? Muswell Hill. I was born in Hampstead in London, and we lived in Muswell Hill. So when I was born, my mum's, who became her best friend, had a baby in the bed next to her as it was in those days and so they became great friends and we were always in each other's houses always particularly Rita's house because one of those big houses in Muswell Hill and there was just music from every floor and Rita's husband at the time well not at the time I'll say that again (laughs) Rita's husband Mm. who sadly died but at the time was the executive who imported the Morris cars to Jamaica so anyone that's been to Jamaica they still have a few of them but certainly when I went to Jamaica they were British loads and loads of British cars there almost like Cuba has all those old American cars yeah. Jamaica had all these British cars well Rita's husband Hassan was the um, executive who's so he was going to Jamaica very very regularly well, in fact the whole Caribbean very very regularly but would always bring back these great records and so we heard all those early records Prince Buster, all the mm. great Scar records, and often a long time before they were ever played on the radio, if they would ever be played on the radio, because initially they weren't. And when you look back on things, you think they were, but let's remember, there was no Radio 1 until 1967. It was mm. all pirate radio and bizarre stations, so having <laughs> a record was more important. So it was Scar was the main music at that Scar, time? Scar, very much so. And also the other stuff that 
they loved and my mum and dad loved so tons of Motown tons of Scar and also great singers you know as the 60s progressed Frank Sinatra Matt Monroe all those great singers which I still love to this day mm. and what did your mum and dad do so my father is a street trader was a street trader had a stall outside Oxford Street until his death um, what did he sell fruit and veg and flowers so flowers right. in the winter fruit and veg in the summer and uh, my mum had a market in fact the whole thing the worlds collide right. it's really so my father was a street trader and they had a fairly you know on off relationship but my mum ran a stall in Canterbury Market because when I was about seven or eight we moved to Kent and I went to Canterbury Technical High School for Boys, which was fabulous. I had a wonderful time and it gave me the skills because I passed my 11 plus, so I went to technical school. Mm. And some of the skills that I possess today came from there. So I had, a, you know, I think a pretty good education, although mm. I didn't stay on for the second year of six when I left after one year. So on a Wednesday, my mum sold costume jewellery in Canterbury Market. And next to my mum was a lady that sold farm eggs. Right. So, park that story because it has a really interesting curve. During my O-levels, because I was taking chemistry, biology, physics, technical drawing and whatever, they all, because they were technical, they were all grouped together as opposed to English and maths. Hmm. So I'd finished mine. They seemed to be all in one block. So once I'd done them I was kind of free and you didn't have to go back into school so I took that opportunity to try and see if I could get a job in a recording studio so I got this book called Kemp's which was like the kind of go-to book in those days again pre-internet where it had listed all the studios the contact details and whatever so I just went to them and because my dad was in London and my mum's mum lived in Golders Green I could come up stay go whatever hmm. so on one particular day a wednesday i went up in the morning to london and i went to see polydor studios which was in stanhope place opposite south Malton street for those that know london and i had this really bizarre <laughs> situation where the, he's now uh, was or became a very famous uh, engineer around the circles but this guy called carlos Holmes was the technical director of polydor studios and as I sort of came to the door of, of um, the studio, and bearing in mind, Stanhope Place is like a cul-de-sac. It's just by Oxford Street. Mm. And he, as I opened the door, he said, Ah, are you the young lad from Kent? Now, <laughs> as you can hear from my accent, I don't have a Kent accent. No. I have, a, obviously, a South accent as opposed yeah. to a Northern accent, but I don't have a Kent accent. Yeah. And I said, had, I thought, oh, he's got these great, amazing powers of dialect. So he brought me in and showed me all around the studio turns out that there was a a chap from or i use the northern expression a young lad from <laughs> dartford college who'd not turned up for an appointment and he right. thought i was him Perfect. so i got to see the studio but i'd also made an appointment to go and see cbs studios which was round the corner yep. so at the other end of oxford street oxford circus moving down to tottenham court road is whitfield street where cbs studios were hmm. so i had a look around C cbs studios and um it was all fab. 
I mean, this this would never happen now. That sort of thing. Of being How did able... you make that initial contact with them? Then did you just call them up and say I'd like to come and see? Or did yeah, you... and some of them I I I'd written a couple of letters, and I don't think I'd had any replies. So I decided just to go, hmm. and because I knew I'd written the letter, I was very confident in saying I've written a letter to I'm come for a job you know (laughs) and most people in those days did have those sorts of things because in a recording studio in those days you had the lowest run was the tea boy Hmm. who made the tea and then packed up the mics and cables the next level up was the tape operator as we'd mentioned using analog tape machines in those days required a human being to press stop and start because there weren't any auto locators initially Hmm. and also the counters weren't very reliable so you had to learn as a tape operator where the verse the chorus and all those sections were so if the producer said right we're going to just record a guitar at the second chorus you'd go and you have to be there ready to go (laughs) moving up assistant engineer often sat by the recording engineer and then the recording engineer and then finally the senior recording engineer so I knew there was opportunities to even be a, t- a tea boy. Yeah. There was a clear sort of path that you Absolutely. could take. Absolutely. Right, without, without any experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was on the job training. Or you could go to like a, a, one of those colleges and then get an apprenticeship at the BBC. Because in those days there weren't the university courses that there are now. Hmm. And that's a massive change. The, the level of education that's available for somebody that wants to become an engineer or producer is so much better so much better Hmm. i mean it's fantastic um however i learned my craft my way i don't you know one's not better Hmm. i guess i get more experience but then when i have students at my studio that's one of the things they love the fact i have got the experience anyway so on this particular wednesday and the market is by canterbury west station so i get the train back from london and it's now maybe three or four in the afternoon so the the market's beginning to wind down and pack up so as we're packing up i'm speaking to my mum and saying okay went to polydor studios went to cbs studios at which point the egg lady as we referred to her went oh i didn't know you wanted to be a sound engineer where have you been today and i said oh i've just come back from cbs studios she'd my son works for cbs studios i'm gonna call him tonight and say that you were there so she called her son the next day i oh and i also had a saturday job right slash weekdays because i was now free from my exams so it was saturday and whatever day so on the thursday and the friday um i was in kant menswear i used to sell menswear in a shop so i always had pretty sharp clothes that was the other thing actually as a point of reference for the youngsters out there make sure you turn up smart and clean were and you looking of... sharp on oh, your appointments? super sharp right. i had the finest clothes <laughs> all through the I, you know it was great because we had a very generous staff discount because it was a private was this suited and booted then was that the not necessarily a suit but it was definitely smart clothes because yeah. suits weren't really the thing then unless you were going to a wedding right but definitely very smart trousers were the were the thing you know the stay pressed trousers were very popular then mm. or the, the or the um flares which i think were brutus flares or something or even if you had jeans they were not the worn out type that you know it was, but I, i'm pretty certain i would have worn a pair of stay press or something very mm. smart because that was definitely the thing then and they used to have a deal with um those base shoes that were very popular then they so i was always i was always pretty dapper right um but i think it's important to present yourself correctly hmm. 
I may have worn a tie, I can't remember, but I certainly would have been smart. I've always been smart. And it's very important when you're going, for, you know, people make a decision on whether you've got the job in five seconds. They really do. So, Mike called me. Now, I've just revealed the name. It turns out that her son is Mike Ross Trevor, who is still to this day one of the greatest recording engineers. If anyone's been to the cinema over the last x years chances are you'll have seen his name if you look at the credits right mike became a great cinema mixer but during the 60s and 70s was a very famous engineer he, he worked on so many famous tracks including the love affair and the tremolos all that great stuff that was on cbs in the 60s mm. but during the 70s he was doing a lot of classical music so he trained me so essentially what happened was mike called me and said well there is a job available but i need someone to be my tape op because i'm doing a load of these classical sessions mm. why don't you come in for another interview i'll interview you so i went for another interview the following week and they said there and then well there's a job for you when can you start so i said well i can start on monday so i literally packed my bags <laughs> went to stay with my nan who lived in god's green and yeah. started on the monday so i never left school in fact in terms of with a gap because the middle of july was the end of my exams and the finish of school so i pretty much was in the shop doing the cant menswear got the call in the shop i do remember that because i remember the boss phoning me said steve cbs studios are on the line for you and i and he said you got the job and i said to them i said look and they said of course you know we know that's what you want to do so yeah. i did the next day which was the friday on the saturday went up to london and started on the monday and uh, one can say i've never looked back but there were lots of ups and downs in that journey mm. but that's essentially how i started and um what was it then about working in a studio? What was it that you, from a pretty young, young age, you knew that you wanted to work in a studio? What was it about working in the studio particularly that attracted you? I'd seen two things that really stuck in, in me. One of which I've actually re-seen recently, because in those days there was no videotape. Mm. So I remember seeing a Phil Spector documentary on the BBC and it had Phil in the studio and this was later in the 60s so it would have been around the time he was probably cutting River Deep Mountain High but there were two things that struck me about it first of all I wanted to be Phil Spector hmm. and secondly for those that know the Phil Spector history his engineer for his, for the majority of Phil Spector's halcyon period was a guy called Larry Levine, spelt exactly the same way that I spell my name, which was unusual in America because a lot of Americans spelt it E-N-E, not I-N-E. Right. Okay. And there's a famous picture that you've seen, that picture where Phil's in black and the desk is there, and it's, the picture always has the credit. Phil Spector with his engineer, Larry Levine, at the controls. <laughs> right. And it'd be like holding like two, two knobs, that's all they had. <laughs> and I thought, that's kind of what I'd like to do. Because I was always into building stuff at school as i mentioned i went to a technical school and we had separate chemistry biology and physics but within physics we had a separate module of electronics which we want if we wanted to take which i did hmm. so i was really into electronics at school this was pre-computers but synthesis was coming through very slowly but the principles the principles that i use to this day with my modular synthesizer i was taught that stuff when i was 15 or 16 and i love it the hmm. fact that you, you see sine waves and you can turn them into something so i was very very keen on the technical side of making records very keen on that and then in 1970 two things happened i remember seeing a documentary with dave edmonds in the studio now that i think was on something like nationwide or one of those tea time the one show of its day i think but it showed dave edmonds in the studio cutting 
I Hear You Knocking, where he played all the instruments himself. And then a couple of years later, I saw that very famous, there's bits of it on the internet, of Stevie Wonder creating the trilogy of records that he made where he was mm. playing most of he it. He played so, everything, didn't yeah. he? Pretty much. So I was seeing that side of making records, and that Christmas I got a cassette machine for my Christmas present, which then allowed me to record things and I started recording and working out how to record things and then as always fiddling with things now that was a cassette so it didn't have overdubbing but I worked out if I put a piece of tape on sellotape on the eraser I could do a kind of sound on sound mm. and I just was recording stuff you know were you playing instruments at that time no or? just stuff just right. recording stuff and the and interesting the recording situation with instruments so at school um my friend Paul who I actually saw very recently because he came to my mum's funeral um, so Paul was kind of like the guitarist of the school and I just always thought the school band sounded so terrible. Sounded terrible from a performance point of view, but yeah. I wanted to do the sound. Okay. So in the school roles that we had, I did the sound and the lighting and that was my role and I loved that. And then later on, I made my own, as it was then, a disco setup with two Garrard SP25 decks and my own mixer and my physics teacher um helped me build this incredible strobe lighting thing which was very trendy then so <laughs> i had a strobe light which was fantastic it was really so brilliant mm. because you'd seen things like uh, status quo using them with paper plane and things like that so to have a strobe light was really cool i made my own so that's kind of what i did i was always on the technical side it was only when i joined cbs in in towards the sort of summer of 76 into 77 that as the synthesizers were coming in often being left in the studio overnight i started to fiddle with a mini moog and an arp and all of those things hmm. and i found i could get to use them because all that knowledge i'd had which at the time was still fresh hmm. because i only just left school i found that i was able to create sounds quite quickly with those modern synths and so became if you like this kind of early programmer in as much as a band would come in there'd be a mini moog left from the night before and the producer would go oh why don't we try that you know because it's obviously very trendy and the keyboard player in the band would be sort of fiddling and the producer would go oh steve you know how to use that can you get us a bass sound or a flute sound or whatever so i'd kind of go <laughs> and then the keyboard player would play the part and right. in those days there wasn't any sequencing available so it had to be played as a performance and i certainly wasn't good enough to do mm. that but then as sequencing came available and i remember my friend george having one of the first sequences i went oh my god this is just <laughs> what i've been looking for and in those days it was a very simple arpeggiator but that allowed me to program in step time and go do, 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 or whatever you was know. the resistance to that sort of technology though in some quarters you know that it should just be the pure instrumentation rather than using synthesizers stuff no or... it was so exciting because i got to work with with bands like sailor who were absolutely 100 percent synthesizers other than 12 string acoustic guitar which was only ever di'd it was never mic'd up hmm. and the acoustic drum track the rest of it everything else was synthesizers so they were really exciting Again, look at what was around at the time. You had Giorgio Morodo, you had Kraftwerk, you had a lot of stuff coming through. The Donna Summer track changed the way that people made records. That's the no Giorgio Morodo and Donna, Donna Summer. Summer yeah. I feel love. Yeah, seventy-seven that was, and at the height of punk, you've got mm. 
ding 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 you know that was whoa and we had craft work as well so mm. th and and can lots of, there were lots of great really really interesting creative sounds no so quite the opposite the synthesizer was a way of exploring even jeff beck at the time i remember his album blow by blow there's a load of synths on that so no synthesizers were the kind of new toy in town so it was an exciting time very much for so everyone. And, and if you go back over your archive any of these rock bands i've mentioned they've all got tons of synths on them hmm. you know super tramp i mentioned in a in a condescending way i love super tramp i was only being you know <laughs> hilarious about it <laughs> not hilarious but i just <laughs> i was being slightly sarcastic i think Supertramp made incredible records and their attention to detail is why they still sound so good today but there's loads of synthesizers on them mm. as was with every major band it was a big deal to have a synth and in fact often the synthesizer player was booked in their own right i remember you know on some of the sessions i worked with you'd book in people and, and more specifically people had the the gear because the, the the synths were so expensive in those days like ridiculously expensive so normally a session player would have the oberheim and come in and play it mm. and what was it like that so did you gradually make your way up the sort of the hierarchy then at cbs is that how it went we talked about mm. there was the way in and then you could move up the, well, the ladder is that what you did well what happened was I'd already started progressing to assistant engineer on the punk sessions because that was the the way. And it was in, invariably Simon Humphrey and me, Simon as main engineer, me as assistant on some sessions. And then there was another guy called Dick Palmer. So he'd be main engineer and I'd be assistant. So what then happened was CBS was making the move towards 24 track, but more importantly, the move towards automated mixing and needing more channels. So Studio 2 installed what then was the revolutionary MCI recording console. So that had inline faders, meaning that the bottom fader had, say, the microphone on it, and the fader above it was how you listen to it. Now, I hadn't been in the business very long, so I didn't have any baggage, but some of the older engineers found that concept a little bit confusing because Channel 1 could be Channel 1, but could be monitoring Channel... 10. Hmm. Whereas in the previous Neve configuration, the left-hand side of the console 1 to 28 was the inputs, and the right-hand side 1 to 16 was the tape returns. Incredibly simple. You didn't need a manual. You could It worked out. So when people say, oh, that looks like a spaceship, it's only the same thing 28 times. Hmm. Once you know one, you know them all. Whereas the MCI not only had more inputs... I th if I remember 52 on that one, it, it may have been 52 or 40. I think it was 52. But you had essentially double the inputs, which meant you could have a load of microphones on the drums. And it also had automation on the mixing, which was really, 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 really important. And a new remote control for the tape machine, which could punch in really fast. So if you're recording a vocal, for example, the job of the tape op was to record when the singer messed up and punched the machine back into record so you play back bang into record not like on a computer and there's no undo if you went <laughs> in the wrong place you messed it up but the mci locator had a rehearse function so you could kind of if it was a really tricky one you could say to the singer right i'm just going to punch it in i just need to test this mm. see if it worked and then you could commit it that was a great feature and the auto locator was much more accurate because it was a, a direct drive machine and the recording fidelity of those machines was pretty good. The, the EQ on the desk was fantastic. Mm. 
lots of Americans were already familiar with it. So what happened was, because I helped install the desk, I had an intimate knowledge, back to my electronics background, of how the thing worked. So when American producers came over, which is why CBS got the desk, because they knew it would attract both American independent producers and some of their American stablemates, mm. they sometimes brought their own engineer. In fact, many cases brought their own engineer from America. So they needed an assistant on the session that really knew what was going on. And that was my role. So I jumped from being like... A sort of uber assistant so <laughs> on a normal session with the with the british producers i was just a tape up slash assistant you know running around but with the american sessions i jumped up a notch because mm. i was assisting the american producer showing them where the patch bay was helping out suggesting microphone choices to what we had available but more importantly i knew the desk really well and yeah. then i'd be and i was super fast at punching in and out i was so good at that that was my kind of <laughs> the two skills i had which i still have to this day Punching in and out and tape editing. Because in those days, again, you'd do a lot of tape editing, physical yeah. cutting. That was tape. cutting with... What did, was it with the razor blade? Uh, depends on the on the genre. In most cases with rock and roll, with a razor blade and a, and a splicing block. But mm. on classical music, very often with a pair of scissors because you needed a much more steep angle, mm. particularly if it was very quiet. So you couldn't have a, a, a hard cut because you'd hear a... Boop, Mm. which you wouldn't hear on a rock band but on a classical thing if say it was a flute or something like that you needed a very long almost like a crossfade now but mm. you could do it with with and you, you know that you had super sharp non-magnetized scissors they weren't like hairdresser scissors <laughs> yeah so you went and you could do it and then the tapes i've still got my was that a bit of a heart-stopping moment though of the first few times well no what <laughs> I suppose well, you get used to it over yeah, time yeah but i learned to re see this is back to lessons i learned a really really good lesson from mike so, on the case of editing a multitrack, which absolutely is life or death, if you mess that up, you've messed it up. Yeah. What we used to do was do it. So, say, let's say, for example, the job was they've got two backing track takes, and we want the intro from take one, and then cut on the downbeat of the verse for the rest of the song. Let's do a simple cut like mm. that. So, what we would do is do a very simple mix onto a piece of quarter inch tape first check where the edit was and then right. if it didn't work you could move it down a beat or a bar or whatever click okay that works now duplicate that with a china graph pencil on the tape and, and do it so the principle was do a test first so mm. that when you did cut it and then make sure the blade was non-magnetized and it was and you didn't have sweaty hands in fact on digital tape editing later on i used to wear gloves because it was more sensitive to sweat whereas an analog tape it wasn't that sensitive the, the sticky tape was more sensitive you just had to do a good job i've still got my tape splice thing there oh, just yeah. you know um in fact i've still got my digital tape one because the digital one you had to, and they were very very rare you had they actually had a latch because you couldn't move the the t sony invented digital tape with a view to editing and it was never recommended but i used to love editing it because it really did work and you could do some very creative mm. things with it and and then later on i had a second machine i could do tape to tape copies but in the short term i used to cut the tape all over the place i loved it and it i thought it worked really well especially if you cut early on on the backing track because if you make a mistake or something doesn't quite work you can always fix it with an overdub you know those classic symbol splashes can <laughs> can hide an edit were there any moments where you thought you had or you actually had made a big mistake okay i've made three or four mistakes in my life one mike ross got me out of a hole and on the other two i've helped get someone else out of the hole so mistake number one was when we were doing a classical session in those days everything was recorded with dolby to keep the noise down hmm. 
but they only had one set of Dolby encoders, meaning that you couldn't, as a lot of classical producers liked, they liked to listen off tape, as in you're recording it, but you're listening to it a second later because they can check whether there's any dropouts on the tape because the orchestra is so expensive. Mm. If the performance was correct, but there was a technical issue, they could hear it and say, we need to do another take while you're there. The problem was we did a, a lunch break and I forgot to switch the Dolby's back in and we did a few little extra bits. And of course, typically the producer said, I think we want take three edited with take 23, which is an afternoon take. And of course, one was Dolby and one wasn't. And so Mike mm. very carefully said, yep, that's great. We'll do that for you. Um, it's getting near the end of the session, which was true. He said, I'll tell you what, Steve and I will just do that for you in our own time. And when you come back tomorrow, we'll have it ready for you. Mm. So they went, oh, f you know, what lovely. Thank you. <laughs> what we then did as soon as they left was we recopied the piece that they wanted onto another piece of tape through the Dolby because you right. can't cut from one to the other. It was right. terrible. That was my first and last time I made that mistake. How did that feel when, that, when you realised? You never make the same mistake again. <laughs> you never make the same mistake again, ever. And I mean, in, in the threshold of things, there's different. So then the other thing that happened was I was working with a producer and I'd moved up to assistant engineer by then. And on the old 16 track machines, punching in and out was a real skill. Hence why I was feathering my own nest. I got pretty good <laughs> at doing it, but it was quite a, an involved episode, meaning mm. you had to switch the machine from. Now, this is going to be very technical, but bear with us. Okay. So when you overdub on an analog machine, and this was invented by Les Paul all those days ago. You play back from another head so that it's in time with what you're overdubbing. Mm. But the quality of that is slightly less than the proper head which you use when you're mixing. So far, so good. So the machine in those days had to be flipped from what they called sync playback, playback off the sync head, to repro, which was the reproduction head. And you'd have to also drop in to record, physically pressing play and record at the same time. Perfect. <laughs> so we did this a cappella session. All fine. So it's in record, all done. Press it on repro. Producer goes, yep, yeah, that's great. Love that take. Just want to make one punch in at, you know, bar X. And this is an a cappella group, so they're recording across all the tracks, mm. all... Not all 16, but maybe, say, 14 of the 16 tracks. So I said to the tape up, right, are we ready? We're going to punch in, watch my cue, all ready. So arms the machine, sync, armed, ready to go. Watch my cue. He <laughs> ah. <laughs> punched into record. I said, I didn't give you the cue yet. And he just went straight into it. And then famously, actually... So that recorded over. What yeah. And then famously, I once worked with Jeff Beck on a group called Up, and he did a guitar solo. Right. And there was a long bit of feedback at the end of the solo. And he said to the tape op, watch me for the cue, because I'm going to do some licks at the end. Watch my cue to <laughs> punch in. And of course... <laughs> as he punched... <laughs> You know, so, it didn't so watch yeah. for the cue. and then finally, the only other thing I remember, we did a jazz session, uh, which I was the assistant on, and Steve Taylor was the engineer. Steve Taylor was a, a, a senior engineer, and I had an assistant under me. And normally, what happened was you'd have a reel of tape, and you'd use up the reel of tape, and the tape went from left reel to right reel. 
and you'd leave it what's called tails out. The reason you did that was that tape would often print through and you'd have like an echo on it and if it was too loud you could hear it. So people found that it was much better to have any print through post the signal as opposed to before the signal. So for, for ease it was the studio policy to just remove the, the reels of tape and dispose of the left hand bit that was blank or rubbish. Mm. And the simple way of disposing of that was to hold the reel with your left hand, get a razor blade and slice through it, and it would just all go in the bin. My assistant used the wrong reel and put the razor blade through the recorded side. Oh. And both me and Steve went, oh, my God, what has he just done? And that was a live session to tape, and that's all there was. Clients come back in. OK, can we um, have a, a, in those days, take away a cassette? To, yeah. Yep, yeah, we'll do your cassette. Oh, it's dinner time now. Um, why don't you go and have dinner and we'll do you a cassette? Anyway, so they go off to dinner and we start splicing it back together again. And we're, there's no way we're going to be finished. Right. No way. So we have to think of a ruse. So, so we decided to take the back out of the machine. So when they came back, they said, I'm really sorry, there's a problem with the machine. Um, which wasn't... Un, you know, things did go wrong a lot. It could you'd have, have been. You'd it was have plausible. The back out, yeah. So they said, again, come back tomorrow and we'll have it done. We worked literally all through the night to the point at which they came in at, like, 9.30 when we were just finishing. We hadn't been to sleep. And, you know, we kind of had a little bit of a wash to try and look like we weren't... <laughs> we did often, well, it wasn't uncommon to wear the same clothes for a couple of days. Okay. Those days, so that, so that was that plausible as well. That was plausible, yeah. <laughs> Thinking about it, I think we might have actually managed to find some CBS promotional T-shirts, which we may have put on. Uh, um, probably anyway, perfect so that, cover. Yeah, so those are things where things go wrong. And so when, how did you make the transition, or when did you make the transition then from sort of to be a sort of fully fledged producer? Because that's the where you ended up, wasn't it? Yeah. So during the periods of the punk sessions, as I'd mentioned before, ten to six was very much the hours that they worked, and they had a strict routine because they didn't want the bands to sort of take advantage of the studio and also to give us some time off. However, it meant that between six and midnight, essentially, it was empty. So Simon Humphrey and I decided that we'd start recording our own, and most of the other engineers did as well. We all did these kind of moonlight sessions for two reasons. First, we could play with stuff to the cows came home. Mm. And secondly, I believe very strongly, it was a great experience. You're doing your own thing. So Simon and I started working on some stuff, and... What's interesting about the timeline of the 70s is people often forget when they think, oh, punk, punk, punk. Disco was also happening. And because of producers like Giorgio Morodo and Sharon and other producers, disco was very producer-led, like it's DJ-led mm. today. Mm. So I said to Simon, you know what, why don't we do that? Because we've got the skill set, and Simon actually was a pretty good guitarist and bassist. I said, look, between the pair of us, surely we can create something, but we can create it in a really unusual way. And I listened to some of those Sharon records, like Human Nature, and I'd read interviews with him, and he did things like put a drum loop down, which was an actual drum loop. And we'd also, although he's not very... Uh, um, What's the correct word? He's not really at the top of everyone's list, but Simon and I recorded a large number of the Gary Glitter tracks with Mike Leander producing. Okay. Now, for those that don't know, Mike Leander, fabulous producer, sadly no longer with us, he played 99% of the instruments on the Gary Glitter records, but he'd start with a drum loop. So he might go, poof, baff, 
boof, baff, and we cut that, make a loop of it, record that onto one or two tracks of the multi-track, and then he'd overdub. Hmm. And then on another track he'd go. And on another track he'd go. And eventually you have, you know, the famous Gary Glitter beat. Right. And I thought that's a great way of working because it sounds fantastic because you've got control over all of them. I said, why don't we try doing disco like that? So I started by, you know, let's have just a kick drum going. And luckily most disco records of the day, that was it. It was mm. a four on the floor all the way through. <laughs> and we started doing stuff. Anyway, we ended up with a couple of tracks that were, I thought, pretty good. Mm. So I thought we need a female vocal on this because Georgia Moroda is using female vocals and a lot of the disco records at the time actually were, were female lead vocals on that type of thing. And I was working with this uh, keyboard player and this girl on another project and I thought she's pretty good, She'll, I'll ask her to, so she sang some vocals. And we had a couple of things that I thought sound pretty good. So now we had to fess up what we've been up to. So we went to see the manager of the studio, Dave Carey, and said, OK, Dave, this is what we've been doing. <laughs> and he kind of... I thought if we offer it to him first, he'll be keen on it because mm. we've been working so hard and I thought they sounded really good. So he said, well, let me take it to the NR department at CBS. And famously, Muff Winwood was executive then and uh, he didn't like it. So... <laughs> He said, well, you're free to do with it what you want. So we went round to various record companies and we got a deal with Satchel Records to release it. But then in the same breath, they then decided it was a bad thing and then Simon and I got fired. Hmm. But then we had this... Be we well, you got fired from CBS? Yeah, for because, using, you'd because used we'd use the studio late at night. Right. How long had you been at CBS for then? It was 79, so I'd been there you know, four years. Hmm. The irony being at that time, Simon and I both had quite a large number of clients that then said well, we're not going to use the studio unless Steve and Simon are there. So we worked freelance in the same building, doing the same job, but the freelance rates were twice what they were for an employee. <laughs> so now, we didn't have fired. the benefits, but we no. were ending up getting a lot more money. So we then decided to, to diversify and put that money into creating this project. So we then started doing a lot of um, freelance work for mm. all sorts of different labels. And doing different things. So Simon and I worked on some things together and some things separately. And, and the reason I say Satchel is very important. So we signed to Satchel Records and they had their own studio in Golders Green, which we were allowed to use almost unlimitedly. So I recorded an album with the Angelic Upstarts because I still had my punk thing. And Simon did all sorts of different things. But, in, but importantly, Simon recorded the Birdie song for right. Henry Hadaway. Okay. And that became an enormous hit and, of course, opened the door for Simon. I went down a different route and um, my connections with producing the effectively the last punk album that Angelic Upstarts did, because they wanted to change. The important thing about the Angelic Upstarts was the album was very well received. But, more importantly, Tony Gordon was their manager, and Tony Gordon then said, I've got this band I'd like you to see called Culture Club. Yeah, I was about to ask you yeah. about that. So how did that then... That then just came about because of that, the same Well, the they same were manager. so pleased with what I was doing, and right. he wanted me to investigate them. So Tony had managed quite a lot of punk bands. He'd managed Jimmy Percy, uh, Hersham Boys, and he'd managed the Angelic Upstarts. But the Angelic Upstarts... Well, punk... 
towards the end of the 70s was on its way out anyway mm. and they did you know in fairness to Menzies and the boys they wanted to make a change and i'd already made the massive investment because i'd gone down a slightly different route i was doing some songwriting and i'd worked with this guy Stephen randall and Stephen already had a deal with rondon music and we wrote a song together which they really liked so they offered to sign me as well and we had a very near miss with it because Simon and I had a near miss with one of our songs as well. We did a we did a song which the Three Degrees cover, but it was never released. So we were so so close so many times mm. as writers, performers, producers. We're trying everything as you do. Then we were so so close on multiple times, but never quite never quite got there. And um, essentially, the deal that I did with Rondor meant that I got to use Rondor's studio free of charge. And in that studio, I was doing all sorts of different demos. But because they signed a publishing deal with me, I had enough money to go and buy a Lindrum. And the Lindrum had just come out. So I pretty much spent my entire advance on the Lindrum. What's a Lindrum? The Lindrum was the very first digital drum machine. Okay. And that changed my life because then I was able to do demos almost anywhere, including a bedroom, and make them sound like they were done in a recording studio. Mm. And within a few months, people were hiring me to be their go-to guy. And that coincided with me getting the gig to do the angelic upstarts because they wanted to use the lindrum and do, do something very different because a lot of rock bands were changing the human league early human league not don't you want me human league but mm. the early human league were they had punk roots you know it was so there was a lot of this feeling of trying to mix machines with mm. humans it wasn't as it looks a bit odd now but at the time it wasn't that unusual what was it like then when you first met with Culture Club? So and did you know straight away that this was going to be a fruitful relationship, or did it? How did it? How and how close to being the sort of finished article were they at that point? So, John Moss came to see me first. So Tony said, "Let me send John to come and see you." So John came to see me at Rondor Studios, where I was working with a guy called John Howard, doing some stuff with him and. Uh, John showed me pictures and discussed the band, but I instantly liked John. Instantly liked John. Presumably, he was pretty young at that point. Then. Yeah, but and he said to me, and I, I sort of slightly remember. He said, oh, "You know my brother, because John's brother did some roadieing for the Clash." So we and and because I'd lived in Hampstead, we all kind of our paths had crossed, but not crossed, if that makes sense. Mm. So I liked him, and I said to Tony, "Right, I really like. I'd not really heard anything, but I just loved John's." vibe and so i said well, to tony why don't we see if we can get some free studio time from emi because i was I'd, i just finished the angelic upstarts and i'd also done another commercial project for them a, a punk artist called honey bane who again tony managed so i thought well they owe us a bit of free studio time so we did book some time to do the sessions of culture club in january 1982 and we recorded White Boy and I'm Afraid of Me. So I'd never met the rest of the band until that day. But again, having the Lind... Because one of the things that was really important about the Lindrum is John said to me, here's the thing. John did a spell in Adam and the Ants. Two drummers. And he didn't like the idea of two drummers. Plus, he was perfecting this Bow Wow Wow beat, the which everyone refers to as that Burundi beat. Hmm. So John said to me, is there any way you can think of for me to be the only drummer in the band but make it sound like two drummers? <laughs> I said, John, I think I've got just the thing. And I showed him the Lindrum. I said, look, if we program the backbeat like this and you can then play on top of it. And he went, oh, fantastic. Now, 
that's an easy phrase to say and I didn't appreciate until quite a bit later what a phenomenal drummer John actually is mm. because in order for me to flippantly say well just program it and then you can play on top of it sounds easy now drummers today that have grown up with program material can do that very easily but drummers then weren't used to that especially punk drummers where very rarely if ever mm. was a punk track recorded to a click track they were used to be going all over the place timing but that's the vibe i'm not yeah. criticizing it that's the vibe of those records speeding up slowing down all over the place so john was able to just magically through his great drumming skill play anything on top of that lindrum so we programmed white boy and then he overdubbed a few bits and we did the same with i'm afraid of me they were the first two we did emi didn't want them so we're back to that same old thing that i had all those years previously i've got what i thought was a fantastic demo tape in my hand and i can put it in my hand because it's in my drawer <laughs> so i had he says <laughs> uh, it, it is in my charge <laughs> So, there it is. There it is. With this... <sighs> Excuse the rustling. <laughs> so with this very tape, I thought I had the keys to the castle. Yeah. Because I loved it and no one was interested. <laughs> and eventually, EMI let them go. They didn't want it. So we were free... <coughs> we were free to go wherever we wanted. Okay. And... Everyone turned them down, apart from eventually getting a publishing deal with Virgin, which then led to a record deal. And the first two records, those two were, we re-recorded them and released them. The re-recordings are almost identical to that. We got it right first go. Nothing. We just, did, you know, the summer of 82, thinking... I remember George was in my car and we heard I'm Afraid of Me on Capital Radio, which was the London commercial station. I thought, this sounds so good. Yeah, Why, you were convinced it was what, the real what thing. What is going wrong? Yeah. It's, you know, I heard it a couple of times on the radio. I heard White Boy on the radio. A couple, I mean, only a couple of times. I don't know. Then we get a call from Peter Powell. And Peter Powell is a massive fan of the band and we owe a lot to him. Because Radio 1 was very powerful at the time. So he said, like John Peel did, Peter Powell also had sessions. And I think history is interesting how everyone considers John Peel the guy that everyone did sessions for. Mm. But actually, Peter did sessions as well, and often for more commercially based artists. And the deal was, just like it was with um, John Peel, you had to use one of the BBC studios. So we ended up just, I think, because of the circumstances, we did it uh, in Birmingham. So we needed the additional track, because you did three... The, the uh, Peter Powell session was three tracks, so we had... There's two. Hmm. We needed a third. I'd mentioned before that I had unlimited time at Rondor Studios, which was a really small demo studio. It was about a third of the size of my room, so hmm. like a bedroom size. But it had a four-track recorder in it, CR78 drum machine, and... A couple of keyboards and i have my keyboard so we cut the demo to do you really want to hurt me in that studio so it was kind of in our back pocket and i said well, why don't we record that now the other thing with the peter powell sessions you're only allowed three hours so i already spoke to the producer and said look 
I can't bring my Lindrum and all those things to the session. It's just too complicated. And they've, you know, they're pricey now. In fact, the Lindrum has, prices have gone through the roof because they're very, very rare. But at the time, it was very expensive. And I really didn't want it damaged. I couldn't afford to replace it. So I said, can I make a compromise with you? Can I bring the Lindrum and all those elements on tape and the band will overdub live, but mm. we will do one song 100% live in front of you. So we copied, and again, the BBC facilities in those days only had eight tracks, so we'd gone from 24 track back down to eight track, which is impossible for, <laughs> for a band if you're used to using mm. 24 track. So I said, okay, let's put all this on a couple of tracks, drums or whatever it was, and then the band will play. So John did some overdubs, and then they sang all the vocals, Roy did the guitar, mm. Mikey did the bass. Helen did BBC, all, all d- perfect. So we're getting looking at the clock, and we're not, we're going to run out of time here. Let's cut the whole thing live. Do you really want to hurt me? Bam. One take. That'll do. Got it. Listening back to I thought, we've captured something there that's pretty good, especially given that George did a live vocal. So I said, when we get back to London, we record this properly. So essentially, there's only ever been three versions of Do You Really? My original demo, which I still have, the Peter Powell session and the actual master. So we went to Red Bus Studios and I said, why don't we just do it the same way? Cut it 100% live, which we did. And mm. that is the version. And indeed, the vocal that is on Do You Really Want to Hurt Me is 100% one take all the way through, apart from the very, very front, that, you know, the very, very beginning bit mm. was a separate section. But from but but onwards <laughs> is all one take. Which is unusual at the time. It's unusual at the time now. (laughs) It's unusual most of the time. It's very, very rare. It's very rare, especially when you're overdubbing, to do a take all in one go, um, because you'd punch in. When you cut live, obviously you can't punch in, you can only edit. Mm. So we cut, although George was in the vocal booth, so I did have isolation on the microphone, it was cut in one go. Mm. And what was he like in those early days, Boy George? What was it like working with him? Did you know, you know, pretty early on, that what a special sort of voice yes, he had? Yes, he had... So George and I have remained friends and are super friends to this day. Interestingly, we did an interview together recently, um, you know, six or seven months ago, for when we were doing some stuff for the BBC... And it was interesting, he said, and I think this is true, as we've got older, we've become even closer friends. And we also now realise what we brought to the party Hmm. in a way that perhaps the hubris of youth didn't. But it's fair to say that one of the great, great things that George has, and I mean, George has been seen on many television programmes and radio interviews, so people listening to this will understand what I mean. Whether George is on The One Show, or he's on Breakfast TV, or he's on the news, or he's just on the radio, he's incredibly entertaining. Mm. He also has the ability to fill the room with his presence, and that was available from the first second I met him. When he then exits the room, the room is less. Mm. He had that then, and he has it now. And in fact, he has it more so now, because what's so lovely about George is that he's a worldwide icon, that whether you're... I don't know, five years old to 
90, most people know who he is. Mm. You could stand in the middle of the desert and if you, you know, if some nomad came up to you and you said, boy, George, they'd probably know what you meant, which is quite rare. Yeah. There's not that many artists in the world. I mean, maybe Madonna, Paul McCartney, there's a few, but mm. I put George up there. And what was that like then? When it, I mean, did you know, as I say then, did you, did you know how good he was when you first met him? I got a feeling for it because I've been doing so many things with so many different people that sometimes it's the bleeding obvious. It just felt really good. It was like we all had the same love of the same tracks, be it reggae, be it soul, be it David Bowie. Those We're all the same age within a couple of years of each other. John's the oldest. I think he's two years older than me and George is two years younger than me. So um, we're all roughly the same age. Mm. So we all grew up listening to pretty much the same music and have overlaps of jazz, soul, funk, you know, different overlaps. But it meant that this was the Culture Club melting pot of sounds. Every record we loved, every record we used as a reference, we loved and we just had the same understanding. And then when we had the initial success of D Really, it gave us this kind of the the additional gravitas to to make the records even better so even as early as the second single once do you really want a hit which has synth strings on it now of course they sound really cool now but mm. they were only synth strings because that's all we had <laughs> but when we did time i said i want real strings on this and we got real strings so mm. the strings on time and on any track that we wanted thereafter we had the choice synth strings or real strings it was a creative decision not a financial decision it must have been a crazy time then because it was they were huge hits weren't they they were massive so i think one of the ways of really describing how mad it was at that moment and how chaotic was when d really went to number one we were in edinburgh at the time we were just still on tour and we'd been on tour for quite a while and i was on tour with the band doing the sound because in those days most of the venues were fairly small. They were getting bigger as the tour progressed, and certainly as the record was going up the charts, they were adding more dates or bigger venues. So sometimes we did two nights at a place. But I really wanted the sound to be as close to the record as possible because mm. many people hadn't seen the band. They'd only done a few gigs up until that point in London. And so I really wanted... If your experience of the band is the record, I want that to sound like that live, which is why I went on tour with them. And we were ready to go to the next venue and George said to me, oh, I need some more pants, <laughs> underpants for the Americans. <laughs> I said, well, I'll come with you down to Princess Street and we'll go to whatever the thing is there. It's like, was it House of Fraser or John? It wasn't John Lewis, but mm. the equivalent of John Lewis. I think it was yeah. House of Fraser or something. So we walked down from the hotel, just walked down the pair of us. Now, George didn't even have any makeup on, but he did have the, the hair and the coat. And we paid for the pants and we got mobbed in the shop. Literally mobbed. And as he recalls, we got chased out of the shop and we literally had to run out of the shop, jump in a cab and go the few yards to the hotel. It was madness. And then from Edinburgh, we went to the next gigs. And a few days later, we had one in Birmingham, which a friend of mine came to. And again, really, really realised the power of the band at that point. We, we came off stage, got into the van, but the police hadn't opened the back and that was just those few seconds where they'd realized we we're in the van and the fans all came around the back and mobbed 
the van to the point at which when you see that black and white footage of the Beatles in those vans it was like that it was so frightening because they were rocking the van <laughs> and we couldn't drive and that was the time when George started to really freak out and went, <gasps> you know and you just didn't realize how many people were following the band and most of them were dressed like George mm. it was he had a huge following didn't he I mm. remember it well you know it was it was a huge phenomenon for a couple of years wasn't mm. it Culture Club and Boy George mm. particularly was such mm. a larger than life character and a lot of people didn't know what to make of him did mm. they but I think when they heard him they realized what a lovely voice he had mm. and then we were lucky we had some very good early wins with certain tv shows and George was on there and very popular and I mm. think warmed to people instantly but that's how he is and he's only got better as time has gone on mm. and how has your career then moved obviously those big days the gold record platinum records with culture club how's how's it sort of evolved from there what how would you what are the sort of main landmarks well once you're a successful producer as I became then of course famously the phone does ring mm. and in those days, it was very much the dominance of the record companies, so they would sign a band and you would produce for them. So you were hired gun, effectively. Mm. As the industry changed, that position changed dramatically, and in fact, most of the records that I make now are me directly being employed by the artist or a small boutique label. I haven't done a major job for years. Years, and I mean, you know, 20 more. Does more. that reflect the way the industry's changed now, that there just isn't the same money from the big labels for the number of bands that they used to back? There's all sorts of reasons. Um, during the Napster period, the record companies lost millions and millions of pounds where people illegally downloaded tracks. And so the bottom of the market fell out. If you wanted a track, you just download it, you didn't need to pay for it. And so consequently, the economy collapsed. That also coincided with some big changes in technology, the ability to be able to record at home to a very high standard, which was impossible only a few years before. Mm. And then you also got a sense that many bands of the 70s and 80s were looking at their royalty checks and going, what? Where's my money? <laughs> and so all those factors became what we have today. So you have many, many artists that really are wanting to be in charge of their own career. And that's both legacy artists and brand new artists. So the legacy artists have a slight advantage that they can do new material and go out on the road because they've got fans. Mm. The name, the brand name is there. So, so the record companies, if you'd like, help them create their brand, but they're now free to exploit their brand and get paid the right rate mm. currently for doing live. Don't get me started on streaming. That's a whole other issue. But at least we've moved away from illegal downloads to streaming. Hmm. And at least with streaming, the potential is enormous. We just have to be paid the appropriate rates. Hmm. And the rates have to trickle down to the artists and songwriters and producers. But at least for once, the mechanics and the infrastructure is such that if everyone in the world had a Spotify or equivalent account and Spotify were paying the correct rate per stream and the record companies pass that on we'd be in one of the richest businesses in the world mm. we're not there yet but we're getting better and better as time goes on so when you have a situation like that i'm no different to almost any other industry a manufacturing industry i'm manufacturing music but 
that's no different to somebody that wants a widget made they find a metal worker or a plastic worker or a carpenter and they say oh we need this bit made and you just go to whoever's good at whatever you do mm. so making records now has become like a boutique craft and i love it it's mm. it's what i love about it also is i've got much more freedom the artists themselves are really free that's why you've got so many great genres coming out because people are not stuck in a rut the charts can have a reggae track, a rock track, a disco track, anything you like, or some hybrid of all those things. So from a producing point of view, it's incredibly creative. It's some of the most exciting times I've ever worked because I've got the ability to play with some of my favourite vintage things alongside new and exciting things that take sound into a direction that we could have only dreamed about even a couple of years ago. The audio quality is both super hi-fi and the opposite depending on what you want mm. whereas there was a period where you only got rubbish because that's the best you could do whereas now you can choose how you want to record mm. whether you want to use a high fidelity mic like this one or you want to use a rubbish mic or you want to use you know a piece of tape to destruct the signal or a, or some other guitar pedal <laughs> to manipulate the sound in a way that you could never imagine mm. and if anyone out there is listening then who wants to be a producer or wants to produce stuff at home Obviously, it's a huge topic, but what are the kind of key things that you have to be if you want to be a good producer, either your own music or producing other people? Well, I think working with a band or an artist is always very useful for starting off because most bands and artists are desperate to find their sound. And as a technician, you can help them find their sound. So that's always a great relationship. I'd say there's a, you know, a classic case with Culture Club. We found the sound. And that doesn't happen every time, but if you can find the if you can find the sound, then that's halfway there, and you can build a great relationship with an artist that way. I think be careful about watching some of those dreadful YouTube videos. I get a lot of students come to me and they go, "Oh, I'm doing it like this," and I go, "What? Oh, I saw this guy on YouTube." I said, "Well, show me." And I look at the guy that's oh, um, sadly it is mainly men. These oh, these <laughs> demonstrations. It's like why? Just because. YouTube is... <laughs> anyway, don't get me started on that. Just because it's there, don't necessarily watch it, because you can't always unsee it. There, yeah. <laughs> there's some terrible, terrible videos out there. There are one or two good ones, and I myself occasionally want to look at something, particularly if I get a new piece of equipment and the, and the manufacturer has done a, hmm. an endorsed a video. Yeah, a tutorial, yeah. and it's really good. And I've done a few myself. Those can be actually really good because you can see things in a way that you can't with audio only. Hmm. However, anyone starting out, be careful what you use. Certainly all the technology magazines are all really good, whether you're American or English. They're all really good. Sound hmm. on sound, mix, musician. They're, all, they're great because... The editor and the journalist are of a very high standard. But be careful what's out there on YouTube. You might end up learning the wrong thing <laughs> and getting into a very, very bad habit. I'd like to finish by asking you three things that I'm asking everyone that uh, comes on here. Um, the first one is, do you have like a, a routine or a set of circumstances or a set of things that you do before you kind of get into the zone and do your best work? Is there a, a set set of circumstances that you need to be in place for you to feel really comfortable and ready to go well i have strict rules now that if i'm working with a band for the first time because i have the studio here if i decide that i want to potentially work with them then i'll have them here for a day just to do a run through hmm. and that can be decided whether i literally just like them and i might work with them or i'm 
okay with them. I mean, you don't have to love them. You can like them. It's a business after mm. all. Um, but I am really blown away with perhaps the song or the concept for the song or any of those things. So that's rule number one, is to really work on something that I feel that I'm going to enjoy. Because I don't need to do this. I'm quite happy to sit here on my own fiddling with all my stuff. <laughs> I don't need anyone else here. Mm. So if I'm going to work with an artist or a band, I want to really feel that there's something that, that um, is important. Secondly, in preparation for the session, like I'm doing this week for a session I'm doing next week, is I like to do a bit of maintenance and just you know double check a few things, change a few things around. There's always there's always an upgrade. Like I was upgrading all my um, reverbs yesterday because I've introduced a new one, and you learn something all the time. You see, I you never stop learning. I bought a new piece of equipment, and the manual is fabulous. But mm. there's a there's a code in the manual of various spring tanks now this is very technical but i'd never seen that code broken down in that way before but it taught me a valuable thing i didn't realize that if the code ends in an a versus a b the orientation of the reverb is important mm. <laughs> so you're always learning you're learning so i learned that this week that the last letter of the code is the orientation of the tank and in my big spring tank there one of them I'd installed upside down. Now, <laughs> actually, I've turned it up the other way. To be perfectly honest, I can't hear a massive difference. Right. Because I think I installed it quite well anyway. But <laughs> I've done it the correct way. Now, just just for the sake of it. Um, but then, of course, using equipment as it's not intended very often is one of the most exciting things about using equipment. Mm. Or making these accidental mistakes that you go... <gasps> That's fantastic. I've started so many great songs where perhaps a manufacturer has given me a new piece of equipment just to test. I do a lot of beta testing. And so I might, I don't know, plug a drum machine in and just have a loop going just so I can test the levels. I'm not listening to the drums at all. I'm just listening to the thing. But in that journey, I can patch something and go, oh, that sounds pretty interesting. And then that goes in the kind of list of, all right, I've parked that little idea that that with that with that is good. That goes <laughs> like a chef, you know, when you yeah. have, like you do a cheese sandwich and you put a different chutney on it, you go, oh, that's fine, I'll remember that chutney for next time. <laughs> Second question. Um, and this can be about the music career, or it can be about anything. Uh, but when you look back at everything that you've done, what's the sort of thing that you're most proud of? They, and it's not necessarily about financial gain, it's more about... When you look back and you think, yeah, we did that as the best that we could and couldn't have done it any better. Well, I'm very proud of all the records I've made. You never go into the studio and say, you know what, I'm going to make a terrible record today. <laughs> That's not how you start. Unfortunately, circumstances get the best of you. And my friend Hank in America has the famous triangle where you have a triangle and at the top you have cheap and at the bottom one you have fast <laughs> and then you have quick. And you can only choose two. <laughs> so, circumstances always do that. And when he did a book, he did a very... Actually, Hank has done a very good recording book, which I can recommend. I did the forward for him. Record production, a lot of the time, is problem-solving. And that covers everything. Not enough talent, hmm. not enough budget, not enough time, <laughs> all those things. So record production, generally speaking, is problem solving. Okay, and final question. Um, and this can be a book, it could be music that you're listening to now, or something you're watching on TV, or a movie that you've just seen. What are you excited about, something that you've consumed, some creative stuff that you've consumed recently that's just 
blown you away? I think Peaky Blinders was superb for the same reasons that I actually really thought Ripper Street was good. Combining musical tone that's not from the era to create a hyper-real version of the era. Mm. So Peaky Blinders soundtrack, phenomenal use of sounds and noises and things. They're not from the time. You know, you'd have a... a jazz band wouldn't you or, mm. or depending on it started in the in the was it started in 1912 or when it yeah, anyway just but, after the first world yeah, war so it's yeah. around the first world war into the 20s the music that they've used if it was all, an authentic thing would be not that music but mm. like, what that's what i love about it. in the same way that ripper street had this high so i like it when people mix things together but the contemporary but with you're using a contemporary sonic landscape with something that is historically a period piece mm. and of course a lot of Peaky Blinders was filmed up here in Liverpool it's funny because I can really recognise mm. areas where they film bits but the I thought that was very impressive as a TV Netflix type thing fabulous mm. really really good so I, I do admire that in terms of um, music that I'm um, excited by it varies considerably. You know, I, I love all sorts of things. I particularly like the Kamazi Washington record because that's very up my street. You can see from my collection there. Mm. You, you can't see the spines, but there's all the things I love in there, like Maynard Ferguson and John Coltrane and Miles Davis. I love all those things. And what I love is that he's broken the three-minute rule in that many of his songs are played on the radio and they're six and seven minutes and they sound fabulous. So that's a great example of a, of a current artist that is both retro in some of it, but it's modern also in the way that it's approached. And, of course, as a producer, I know that those records could have only been made today, that the sheer amount of work involved in those records in terms of mixing and production is breathtaking. It would have been impossible to make that record a few years ago with the equipment that was available. You need a modern palette to, to do that. So that's in, in music. That's just an artist. that I love Apple Music because I listen to that a lot and I, I travel up and down to London a lot, so I've got plenty of hours to listen to good quality music. So I love the randomness of having things that I hadn't actually anticipated coming mm. up because I still enjoy music. So that's television and audio. In terms of film, um, what have I seen recently that I really enjoyed? Um, I've seen quite a few films because we're very fortunate we've got a very good cinema here. Mm. So what have I seen that, that I've enjoyed? Um, I really enjoyed that Joaquin Phoenix film that was out a few months ago. I haven't seen it. completely forgotten the title. Um, it was the Paul Anderson one. Okay. Obviously the Star Wars, which is fabulous and keeps on going. And uh, I remember seeing the first Star Wars when it came out at uh, the Dominion. So th there's some great films, and I love the fact now that fidelity is moving forward and, and everyone is aware of how great they can make things. And some of the experiences that you have at the cinema, in a good cinema, are breathtaking. And the amount of work that goes into the music, the sound effects, the foley... Oh, it's fantastic it's, and, and we're, everyone's pushing the format further to have more hmm. more surround better quality and just finally actually um, 
what is the one record from a producer's point of view? You're just saying then about the Kamazi Washington and the, mm. some of the films, all the work that's gone into it. Is the one record that you listen to and you just think, wow, you know, in terms of the production side of things? Depending on the decade, there's different ones. So mm. from the Beatles collection, Strawberry Fields, easy one. That represents Sir George Martin, the role of the record producer quantified in a track where the technology was battling against them and yet they created this masterpiece. Certainly that would be one from Sir George Martin's block. In terms of American, of course, I have to say something like either God Only Knows or Good Vibrations from the Beach Boys mm. for the, exactly the same reasons. A piece of sonic master trickery and then in the 70s things like I'm Not In Love 10cc for the same reasons again and then some of Trevor Horn's work I think uh, um, Owner of a Lonely Heart with Yes is fantastic as is ABC for the same reasons where it's pushing the envelope of of technology and then more recently there's some really great bands I actually really like the American band Real Estate because I think the sonic colours that they're creating with their guitars I don't know if you've ever heard them but no I haven't it's it's really this this world they create with their guitar sounds I really love that so I'm open to all sorts of things from a producing point of view there's some great dance records where you can appreciate that the people involved in that particular version are really good there's a lot of rubbish out there <laughs> but there are when it's good it can be very good and very creative the genre itself can be limiting but if if the producer is up to spec then they can within that genre create some mm. lovely lovely things i think it's one of the most exciting times for music in a long long time and it seems like to me that the thing that you're most excited about is when someone's doing something different and doing something that has not been heard before always as a producer you're looking for the next thing that's different to have the edge on someone else whether that's a sample whether that's a a piece of equipment or a way a method and the great thing is over the years I've developed methods so that's really really important like I'm working on something at the moment so when I have the students in they test me with things <laughs> and we have all sorts of mad ideas but the great thing about that is it makes me think really really outside the box and really differently and so sometimes as a result of those conversations I try other weird things and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work but when they work <laughs> you get special sounds that you go well i'm just putting that in my back pocket and that's going to be you know th because you can that is the craft it is a craft that we do and and if you can bring that in you still need a great song and a great idea and you still need a great artist to perform that however all the ingredients are going to be there if you've got a great song with a terrible s singer and a terrible production you know, a good production can rescue an average song, just about. <laughs> but when all the pieces are together, then that's when you have a really great record. Steve, many thanks for talking to me. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>